and I think you'll find that uh, what we'll be covering, the Genesis global flood of Noah in two parts, and then a study on dinosaurs will fit under that loose theme for our meeting of biblical events and characters. And I think Christian evidences obviously are very important. I think they've always been critical. I think they always will be critical and uh, maybe even increasingly so as we live in a more skeptical and unbelieving society that we be able to defend and fortify our faith, what we believe, why we believe, what we believe as we talked about during the meeting, and then to share that with our children and the next generation and then be able to give an answer of the reason of the hope that is within us. And so I uh, certainly think this is important, fundamental, foundational information before you can get somebody to accept a book, chapter, and verse and take them to book, chapter, and verse, often you have to start by convincing them that book, chapter, and verse is inspired, that God exists and that the Bible is his word and that Jesus is his son. And so I certainly think uh, these studies have their place and are important. And I think, again, they'll fit within uh, the theme of our meeting of biblical events and characters, and not just lessons that we can learn from them, We'll talk about that in our next study, lessons we can learn from the flood and make some application, but also that these events actually happened and these characters actually lived as the Bible presents them. And that's what we want to consider as we study the Genesis flood of Noah for a little while this evening. The flood is perhaps one of the most prominent stories in the Bible. In fact, for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the first book in the Bible are devoted to it. Besides creation, it's the greatest single physical event in the history of the earth. Nothing like it has occurred since, nor will occur, until the final destruction of the earth. And both the Old Testament uh, refers frequently to the flood event. The New Testament writers refer frequently to the flood event. Peter discusses it. Uh, Jesus Christ himself endorsed it, as actually happened. So in a sense, their credibility, the Bible's credibility, Jesus's credibility depends upon this event actually occurring. And so while this is a prominent story in the Bible, and besides the entrance of sin into the world, no event has changed the topography and conditions of the earth and affected human history as much as the global flood of Noah marking a new beginning. And yet it would be difficult to find an account in the Bible that's been ridiculed more than the flood. These attacks, though, and these attitudes weren't always so prevalent. In fact, for a long time, for centuries, scientists and uh, theologians attributed many of the Earth's features to the global flood of Noah. It's only within the last 150 years with the development of evolutionary theory and evolutionary geology where this event has become under increasing uh, ridicule and scrutiny. In fact, many Christians, sadly, have adopted the theory that the flood was just a mythical event, or if it really occurred, it was a local or a regional flood, disregarding what the Bible and what the evidence clearly teaches, as we'll see this evening. And before we get into that evidence, I want to go back to Genesis chapter 6, begin reading in verse 5. It says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And so as 
you read in Genesis what caused this catastrophic event, and you see that the wickedness of man, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And as you read in Genesis at what led to this wickedness, you'll see that it says that the sons of God, I believe descendants of Seth from the righteous lineage, began to marry the daughters of men, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, began to marry them. And so you have good people mixing with bad people, intermarrying with bad people. And I think there's a lesson in this. Now, we plan on covering lessons from the flood next time, but I just want to mention, we see a powerful lesson here about evil communications and not being unequally yoked and guarding against uh, evil uh, relationships and communications. That's very, very important. We see the devastating consequences and effects of those bad relationships. And so we see God's plan to punish man because of his wickedness, but we also see God's plan to save man. Genesis 6, as we read the next verse, verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so as we begin to consider the evidences that I believe make a convincing case that this event really happened. I think a lot of the controversy and the debate centers around this question of how old is the earth? And we're gonna talk some more about this and look at some additional evidences when we study uh, the, the subject of dinosaurs. But I wanna present just a few examples uh, in support of a young earth. Earth's decaying magnetic field, there's a huge electric current in the core of the earth. And it's that magnetic attraction that causes an arrow and a compass to point north. Those magnetic forces are weakening over time. Some estimate that they'll be gone by 4000 AD. If the rate of decay is constant, we're gonna talk about uniformitarianism, that the theory of evolution assumes that these rates have been constant over time. And that's why the earth must be so old because everything today is as it was then. If that rate of decay is constant, then the Earth would be approximately 10,000 years old. The amount of hydrogen and helium, hydrogen is converted into helium, it doesn't convert back to hydrogen. And so if the universe was truly billions of years old, all the hydrogen in theory would have changed to helium, yet that's not the case. The vast amounts of hydrogen in the universe is a convincing case for a relatively young earth the amount of helium in the atmosphere that has been measured the rate at which helium is introduced into the atmosphere has been measured the theoretical rate of helium release into space has been calculated and using again that old earth assumption of uniformity over time that rates have always been the same it's easy to calculate an upper limit on the age of the atmosphere. The atmosphere based on that rate could be no more than two million years. We know that it's much less than that, but two million years is still significantly less than 4.5 billion years as the theory of evolution alleges today. What's known as the faint young sun paradox. As the hydrogen within the sun fuses into helium, the sun gradually increases in temperature. Calculations show that at current rates today, Three and a half billion years ago, again, using their assumptions, the sun would have been 25% dimmer and would have heated the earth less, dropping the earth's temperature by some 31 degrees Fahrenheit. In fact, the earth would have been below freezing. But according to contemporary thinking and evolutionary thinking, the earth was hotter, not colder back then. 
Not only is there no evidence that the earth was ever frozen, but if it had been frozen three and a half billion years ago and beyond, according to evolutionists, life could not emerge three and a half billion years ago since it relies on liquid water. So that's again a major problem for these old earth theories. The lunar recession rate, the moon is presently moving away from the earth at a rate of about four centimeters per year. Based on the equation that describes the moon's recession rate, scientists can calculate where the moon would have been compared to earth at different points in history. For example, 6,000 years ago, the biblical time frame of when the earth and the moon would have been created, the moon would have been 750 feet closer to earth than it is today. And that's a pretty insignificant distance. We know that we're just the right distance away from the moon. Any closer, any far, farther away, the gravitational pull, there'd be devastating effects on earth. And so 6,000 years ago, 750 feet closer would not have had a significant impact. If, however, the moon has the contemporary theory suggest is four and a half billion years old, there's a significant problem because one and a half billion years ago, the moon would have been touching the earth. So again, these examples, these rates do not allow for a universe that's four and a half billion years old. Another example, comets are balls of ice and dirt that are moving through space in elliptical orbits around the sun. And they are believed to be leftovers from material that initially formed when the solar system was said to have been created or, or come into existence four and a half billion years ago, according to the theory of evolution. But as comets make their orbit and move closer to the sun, solar winds and radiation from the sun blow material from the comet, uh, which causes that tail that we see in the comet. Since materials are moved from a comet with each cycle around the sun, obviously the comet would eventually disintegrate over time. The typical lifespan of a comet is approximately 10,000 years. How then can the solar system be four and a half billion years old if thousands of comets thought to have formed when the solar system formed are still orbiting the sun? And we could go through so many examples in support of the biblical time frame of a relatively young earth, the amount of salt in the sea, the amount of sediment on the ocean floors, which prove a relatively young earth. And so as you present this evidence to evolutionists, their response typically is going to be the rates must have been different back then. But when they do that, that disproves uniformitarianism, which says the rates have always been the same, which is how they date things to be so old because we observe rates today, it must have been how it was then. So it undermines the assumptions of the dating methods they use to try to prove their old age theories. One more example that I think is very powerful and relates actually to the flood. One of the strongest arguments I believe for a relatively young earth is population statistics. According to historical records, the human population doubles approximately every 35 years. So let's suppose mankind starts with two people for the sake of argument, let's call them Adam and Eve. And let's say that man's been around for a million years. Theory of evolution says two to three million years, but to be conservative, we'll just say one million years. If we say each generation is approximately 40 years, each family had two and a half kids. We know back in the day they had more than that, but to be conservative, allowing for wars and famines and diseases and other devastations that wipe out vast amounts of the population, if man has been around 
for a million years, based on population statistics, the growth rate, there would be one times 10 to the 5,000th people one million years later. To show you how big of a number that is, we talked about the size of the universe. We talked about facing our giant, having God's perspective and the, the vastness of what he's created. The universe itself, 93 billion light years in diameter. The universe itself is estimated to be able to hold one times 10 to the hundredth power of people. So the universe itself cannot hold the amount of people we would expect to see a million years later, one times 10 to the 5,000th power. And so the relatively small population today is powerful evidence for relatively young earth. If you started with eight people post-flood based on the biblical time frame, today you would have approximately six to eight billion people according to this uh, population statistics and that growth rate, which is precisely the amount of people we find living in the earth today. And so we want to now talk about historical evidences that I believe make a convincing case that the flood actually occurred. If eight people, Noah's family, survived the flood, we would expect them to pass stories, their memories of this event down to each generation. As they repopulated the earth, we would expect them to take that story with them. And that's exactly what we find. 200 to 500 flood legends throughout human civilizations in different times and different areas before globalization, before social media where they could copy a single a source or story. You have all these legends all over the world that talk about a global flood. And notice the amazing similarities to what's recorded in the book of Genesis. And 95% of these legends, the flood was global, not local but global, 88% a certain family was favored, 70% survival was by means of a boat, and two-thirds animals were saved, and the flood was due to man's wickedness. You see here a chart depicting just a few of these legends in various countries throughout the world, and you see here how many of them have full or at least partial representations of the biblical idea. Obviously, we would expect over time as that story was passed down farther and farther away from when the event actually occurred, that some of the details would be lost, but it's amazing that we have this amount of legends and remembrances of this event and the remarkable similarities to what's recorded in the book of Genesis. There's a Hawaiian flood legend that talks about a man by the name of Nu'u who was saved with animals on a canoe. There's a Hindu flood legend that I find interesting traveling to India. Predominant religion there is Hinduism, and they also have a flood legend where a man by the name of Manu was saved. And Nu'u and Manu have strong ties to the name of Noah, very similar. In one story, a man by, by the name of Dum was saved. I found that kind of humorous. I guess he evidently was smarter than his parents thought that he would be. But there's an abundant amount of historical evidences that I think make a convincing case that this event actually occurred. We can't explain the amount of these legends and the similarities, but by this event actually occurred. And so we want to now transition and look at, not only would we expect to have historical evidences, but we'd also expect to see physical evidence that a flood occurred. Genesis 7 talks about how uh, all the high hills and mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The mountains were covered. All flesh died. Obviously, if every living substance was destroyed, we're not talking about a local flash flood. This is a universal flood covering the mountains. And yet, when Christians say sometimes it must be a local flood or a regional flood, 
what would the point of that, what would the point of building an ark for a hundred years have been in gathering all these animals? Why go through that great effort? A hundred years was plenty of time for Noah and his family and the animals to simply go somewhere that wasn't local. And yet critics will also say there's no way that a boat could have contained all those animals. Ask them if they know how big the ark was. In a tremendous book uh, called The Genesis Flood, Whitcomb and Morris uh, present these historical and physical evidences, and they cover some of these objections, including this idea that the, there is no boat that could have been big enough to contain all the animals in the earth. When you look at the dimensions of the ark, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, with three decks, had the storage capacity of approximately 100,000 square feet. That would be like uh, eight freight trains, 65 cars each, the total of 520 cars, vast amounts of area. Consider also that Noah could have taken not fully developed animals, animals when they're smaller, also broad categories of animals. You have to take every uh, species uh, between the animals but could have taken broad categories and then after the flood, they could have, uh, you could have had microevolution, not macro, microevolution and adaptation post-flood. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. He says, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The word for flood there in the Greek is not the same as the typical Greek word for a flood of water, but the word is cataclysmus, where we get the word cataclysmic. Think about Peter in 2 Peter 3, when he talks about a judgment scene in this cataclysmic or catastrophic way. He's not talking about a local event in 2 Peter 3, but obviously Peter is referring to a universal event. So in the Bible, refers to a worldwide global flood in Genesis. That's exactly what it means, and that's exactly what happened. And we have evidence all around us, even under our own feet, that prove that to be the case. We could go to places in our country, in the United States. You see here a picture of Grand Canyon. Next to that, a picture of the second largest canyon, Paladero Canyon, which actually is in our backyard. The fingers of that canyon extend into our neighborhood. And there's an amazing amount of evidence in support of the Genesis global flood of Noah in those canyons. If you remember, a movie came out a few years ago in theater um, called Is Genesis History? And they spent a lot of time talking about the ark and the book or the flood in the book of Genesis. And they spent a lot of time looking at evidences that the flood occurred in the Grand Canyon. But understand, the flood was not just about a bunch of water, this was a major geologic event. The fountains of the deep. The ocean floors broke up. Psalm 104 talks about the formation of mountains. Think about today, the mountains form at centimeters per year, very slow, very gradual. And so evolutionists, again, assuming uniformitarianism, that the rate's always been the same, those mountains must be millions or billions of years old. But you see uh, the year of the flood, they say 57% of meteors that hit the earth, hit the earth during the year of the flood. I think that's significant. And so you have, I believe, through that, um, you have, and through the flood, breaking up of the deep, you have plate tectonics. 
occur because of the flood. The earth is the only planet that looks like a, a cracked egg with all these different plates. And so as these plates move along fault lines where a lot of that activity occurs, you have plates some that dive under one plate and you have plates that come together and, and smash into each other and you, through that activity, especially during an event like the flood, you could have the formation of mountains at a considerably accelerated rate than you see today in present processes. So as we look at geological features like the Grand Canyon and like Paladero Canyon, how do we explain them? What's the best explanation for how these canyons formed? Well, evolutionists will say that the Grand Canyon was carved out by the Colorado River, which is very impressive because it must have, it travels uphill in some places. It must be the ultimate little engine that could. Paladero Canyon, is said to have been carved out by the Prairie Dogtown Fork of the Red River. And if you've ever seen the Prairie Dogtown Fork of the Red River, you know how improbable that is. You can imagine how big that river is, how much water we have out here. And so you see why the theory of evolution needs so much time for these processes to take place because they're so impossible. This mythical marriage and union between mother nature and father time. And so you have these competing worldviews, these competing philosophies. On one hand, catastrophism, biblical worldview that these rates could have changed and been different and that things like canyons can be formed very rapidly at accelerated speeds due to catastrophic cataclysmic events like the flood versus gradualism and uniformitarianism, which says that those processes have always been constant, that what we observe in terms of rates of decay and rates of growth and that we see today have always been the same. That the key to understanding the past is to understand the present. And these assumptions, again, are flawed based upon these assumptions that the rates could never change. So if we can show that coal formation or canyons or these different things can be produced by processes during catastrophic conditions, we can undermine these assumptions related to uniformitarianism. And I wanna do that briefly with you. I think one of the best examples, uh, recent examples, of disproving uniformitarianism and showing that these features can occur and form in relatively short periods of time. You might remember the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980 in Washington and the amazing effects that occurred in a short period of time. And obviously they've been studied over the last 40 years and 6,000 feet of strata or layers, sediment layers, have been laid over 40 years due to that eruption. So if you take the rate at 100 feet per year and applied it to places like the Grand Canyon, the 5,700 feet of the Grand Canyon at that rate could have formed in 57 years, which is significantly less than millions and billions of years. There have been numerous mud flows since and a canyon you see pictured there in the bottom right was formed in one day at 140 feet deep so things like canyons some of these features we observe in earth have been shown to be able to form very very quickly much quickly than present rates and processes you might remember studying the geologic column in science class and they present this column like it's a fact in to teach the theory of evolution each of these layers strata are said to have formed over millions of years, and this lower layer is millions of years older than the next layer, which is millions of years older than the next layer. And they present this geologic column like it's a fact. 
Yet according to evolutionary theory, the life record in the various strata of the earth extends back supposedly 2 billion years, they say. But if these earth layers are to be found anywhere on earth at that age, they should extend a depth of about 120 miles. That's of course impossible since the sedimentary water laid strata that contain fossils are never found more than 12 to 15 miles deep in any place. In fact, the Earth's crust is only 25 to 30 miles thick. And so again, if things have been around for billions of years, those layers should extend much deeper than what we see. And so while scientists will concede that the geologic column does not exist anywhere in the world in completed form, that's something they don't tell you in the science book, they nevertheless suggest that the Grand Canyon is one of the best examples of it. And yet when you go to the Grand Canyon, you see here how many of those layers of this geologic column that are missing in this best example of this, of this column found anywhere in the world. Another problem for evolutionists that also relates to the age of the earth and relates to the Genesis flood of Noah is known as the Cambrian explosion, the Cambrian layer of that column. Um, very little fossils are found before that layer. And then all of a sudden you have an explosion in the Cambrian layer of fossils without any evolution, uh, evolutionary history, uh, fully developed species. Even Charles Darwin recognized the Cambrian explosion as a serious problem for his theory. Richard Dawkins, a, a famous outspoken uh, evolutionist, described the Cambrian explosion in this way, the Cambrian strata of rocks, vintage about 600 million years, are the oldest in which we find most of the major invertebrate groups. And we find many of them already in an advanced state of evolution, the very first time they appear. It is as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history, I wonder why. Needless to say, this appearance of sudden planting of life without any evolutionary history has delighted creationists. Another man, Evolutionist admits the Cambrian explosion was the most remarkable and puzzling event in the history of life. Atheistic evolutionist Blair Scott, the communications director of American Atheist Incorporated, admitted, if I take the Cambrian explosion on its own, the logical conclusion I would draw is, wow, it was created. And so what you have is, again, before this layer, you find very few fossils, and then all of a sudden you have an explosion of fossils in this layer, and that's exactly what creationists believe in the Genesis account of the flood would expect, that you would have very few fossils preserved before the flood, but then during the flood you would have a preservation of a lot of fossils and animals that died at the same time, buried in mud that helped preserve them, and you have this line known as the great unconformity that extends and stretches across the entire planet. And that line marks the beginning of the Cambrian period and underlies the explosion of life, exactly as creationists would predict what occurred during the Genesis flood of Noah. Some additional evidences. Uh, coal beds are not being formed today. Again, if these rates have been the same, we should expect to see coal being formed today, yet we don't see that. There's no evolutionary changes in the coal record. It's as if the coal was produced during the flood. Polystrate tree trunks and polystrate fossils in general, I think, are so fascinating. Poly meaning multiple straight strata. So you have tree trunks and even fossils of different creatures that are found in multiple layers. Now think about that. If each layer was formed over millions of years, how do you have trees 
and other animals and creatures in multiple layers said to be millions of years apart from each other. How do you explain polystrate fossils? We mentioned the rapid burial of animals during uh, the flood event and how that caused the Cambrian explosion. You have this preservation of all these fossils. Here you see a picture of a fish in its last meal and below that a reptile giving birth. Vast fossil graveyards all over the world. We're going to talk about dinosaur graveyards and even evolutionists will admit that these dinosaur graveyards had to have been the result of the flood, but they're quick to point out that it must have been a local or regional flood instead of global flood. But the vast amounts of fossil graveyards we find all over the world is powerful evidence for the Genesis global flood of Noah. The fact that we find marine fossils high above sea level, places like the Grand Canyon and Paladero Canyon, which are above sea level, even on the tops of mountains like the Himalayas, 20,000 feet above sea level. How did marine sea fossils get on the tops of mountains? Genesis tells us the mountains were covered. Sediment layers, for example, in the United States are found up into Canada and even across the ocean on into England. How do these sediment layers from certain areas get across the ocean into other uh, continents? And then the rapid or no uh, erosion between strata. We talked about those different layers. And if those layers formed, each layer was laid down and formed over millions of years, we would expect there to be gradual erosion during that process, yet we don't find that. We find rapid erosion in some places, what we would expect because of the flood and the waters of the flood causing rapid erosion in a short amount of time. And then we find layers where there's no erosion hardly at all. They're, they're smooth in between layers. Think about if you made a cake with multiple layers and you built that cake and then you set it outside, Within a few days, you would expect there to be degradation between those different layers, scavengers, wind, water erosion. You're not gonna have smooth layers anymore. And so the fact that we don't have uh, gradual erosion, the fact that we find these layers that are smooth without any erosion is again, evidence that the flood occurred. We also find rock layers that uh, were bent without breaking indicating that those rock layers were folded while still wet and pliable before final hardening. Again, amazing evidence that the Genesis global flood of Noah occurred. So by no means tonight, if we've been able to cover every piece and line of evidence, that would be a uh, countless uh, amount of studies, but hopefully the evidence we have considered for a little while tonight has been convincing has built your confidence in the reliability of the Bible. Because again, if you can't trust the Genesis 1, the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, how can you trust anything that follows after it? Many of those books and writers obviously endorsing the flood account. So you can have faith that the Bible is reliable, that these events and characters we've been studying actually lived, actually existed, actually occurred. And Lord willing, next time, look forward to talking about lessons and principles that we can learn from the flood. What are the takeaways? What's the application? Because again, Christian evidences can't just be about interesting information. That's useless and that's meaningless if there's not implementation. So what does it do to me? What does it do for me? What's the takeaway? What's the application? That's what we want to consider for a little while in our next session.